the thing that actually amazed me about this brainstorm project was it's a win-win-win situation. I mean, the adolescent becomes empowered to take responsibility for her or his behavior. The adult is relieved of all this kind of pressure to think that the adolescent erroneously is crazy and instead has a way to communicate with more respect and more efficacy. And the world itself has the opportunity to actually tap into the incredible creative energy and passion and drive and collaboration of adolescents. It's really a call to action for, for everyone. Welcome. I'm your host, Nicholas Strauss, and you're listening to The Participant Observer, a space where you become aware, a place where you are the Participant Observer. You're listening to part two of this podcast. Well, do you have any advice for adults in terms of how they can reconnect with their adolescent selves? So if we if we create this sort of reduced kind of trite image of the adult in the restaurant, as you just created for us, where, you know, they're looking at the adolescents at the other table, their first reaction is, oh, gosh, they're noisy and, huh, you know, I'm not really having so much fun. How does the adult reconnect with their adolescent self? How do they convert that energy and say, now, wait a second, what am I doing here? I got to, I got to somehow tap into this and, and be friends with it. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is, is knowing what happened to you when you yourself were, uh, that age, you know, and, and thinking about were these four elements just to stay with that of the essence a part of my life? Uh, did I ever have these? And I think for some people, you know, they, they actually, uh, you know, they didn't. And so it's, it's, a, it's kind of an odd, it's an odd question because they don't know what is really a- being asked about. So that's the first thing is to do a little reflective practice to see, okay, well, what can I say about what I actually had of this? The next thing would be to say, okay, you know, if I didn't have this in my life, how do I get it back? And there, there are ways, you know, I talk about in the book to do it, but the bottom line is there, there's, there's something any of us can do to develop these things in our life. It's, you don't have to be feeling like you're stuck in the adult life that you have. You can actually be quite creative in how to make things better. Right. You know, the irony is you have to be kind to yourself and accept where you're at. But at the same time, it's kind of a matter of saying, well, here's where I'm at. Now, let me try to change myself. <laughs> you know, so it's, right. it's like it's like therapy itself, you know. Right. I wonder if there are a number of parents who find themselves exploring it with or through their adolescent children and whether it ever becomes a sticky situation in which it feels almost like the parent is, is living through the, the child. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is this is one of the big challenges, of course, you know, is that you do live through your kids and uh, we, we actually want to really avoid that. Right. You know, we want to find our own life. That's the key thing. Right. So now you, you identify your parenting style as structure with empowerment. Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. Would you explain that for us and maybe give some examples of uh, situations or points where you uh, you had to adapt your parenting style depending on a child's needs? Well, I can take my two kids. Uh, they asked me not to talk about them in books, but I think I can talk about them in general. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, they're, they have very different temperaments, you know, and so recognizing that part of what we do in parenting is to say, okay, 
I am going to understand this particular child in front of me. You know, I'm going to understand what they're all about. And I'm going to try to have my parenting adapt as best it can. So now what does that mean? What that means is that I say, okay, this kid has a temperament that's outgoing. This kid has a temperament that's ingoing. What do I do as a parent to help them to just be the best they they can be? And that's not always easy. So I've got it. So it isn't just that I have like one size fits all parenting. I've got to find a way to realize that the whole issue is about attunement. Right. Well, you you, you mentioned that reflective conversation is the foundation for adolescent parenting successes. Does that refer to attunement? Well, reflective parenting would be um, the first stage would be, you know, asking myself what is going on inside of me. So I'm aware, you know, so it requires, you know, insight. Right. And then what is going on inside of the person I'm dealing with, this one child or this other child? And what does it mean for them to have a connection with me where I understand and I'm responsive to their internal world? That, that's, that's the whole idea in right. a nutshell, you know. And so I respect that they're different and I try my best to take those differences and weave them together with a general approach to parenting. What's the general approach? Attunement is really, really important. It's, it's the structure, but also with connection. And when I do that, you know, the, the great thing is I have this opportunity to just keep the same principles going, but have them be adaptable and flexible. Some people might look at that and say, well, that's, you know, you're just not giving any kind of structure. I don't, I don't think that's true. I imagine that this is, of course, best done in reflecting mostly in hindsight. I would imagine it is extremely difficult to do in moments where adolescent energies can feel provocative to adults, particularly when they're being what we would deem as reckless or perhaps they're being simply excited or excitable and our envy is kicking in and the mixture of, you know, some form of our anger and resentment or bitterness mixed with their pleasure, I don't know, is is creating some kind of resistance or conflict. I'm wondering how you might suggest the parents communicate with their teens to highlight the enhanced focus on the positive, as you put it, the the increased reward drive. Yeah, well, here's the way I, th- I would suggest that's possible to do, which is to start with your, as a parent, your understanding of what it is that your child is trying to communicate. And to do that in a way that is very open and you're really trying to understand how your child's developmental place in life is manifesting itself in a behavior, even if it's irritating you, that you can understand it's irritating you fine, but you are able to connect with them around this issue. A good example would be peer relationships. You may find it really infuriating that your child is trying to be at a party or wear the kind of clothes other kids wear or fit in somehow. And you may interpret that as, oh, you know, what did I do? I didn't raise my child to be strong. But the fact is, when you understand the brain of the adolescent, you understand that, you know, belonging to some social connecting group, it could be one person, it could be a group of people, can feel like a matter of life and death. So while your initial response may be, oh, my God, so weak peer pressure, oh, why didn't I raise a stronger kid? Instead, it's just the opposite. You say, wow, my child, my adolescent here is manifesting something that's been going on for, you know, probably a hundred million years that, you know, that adolescents, when they leave the nest, 
if they're not with other adolescents, they're, they're somebody's lunch, <laughs> you know? And so <laughs> right. you, say, you go, wow, okay, well, okay. So, so you, so you see this sometimes where parents will understandably say, oh, I don't have a stronger kid caving to preparation. And I said, no, your kid is like living in a body, which has a brain that evolved with all these pressures of survival. Right. So that's, you know, what reflective parent is you, you reflect on your own place. So, okay, I'm really irritated. You understand the larger concepts. You see what your kid is really doing and you see what the meaning of it is given your new understanding of things. Well, it's interesting because in some ways you're saying, look, it ain't broke. Leave it alone. This is how we evolved and this is what's supposed to happen. But at the same time, you have a very scientific approach that suggests there are things we can do to harness the strengths and optimize the health of adolescents. And so what I'm wondering is, you know, given what you know about the neurobiology of the adolescent brain and the development of the adolescent mind, is there a particular parenting style or behavior, habit, process of some sort that you would you would advise parents to implement, to help them, to help set up for this moment. They could implement it in early childhood development in anticipation of, of being with an adolescent. You know, should they start teaching some form of remedial mindfulness or, or should they be doing something that might help an adolescent later on? Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. It's always a little tricky thing because adolescents are almost programmed to not really want to listen to what their parents telling them to do. So <laughs> I think part of why I wrote the book the way I did was to have a kind of companion for the adolescent. Obviously, you could say, oh, this is my parent's friend or something, but I'm not. I'm just some <laughs> guy, but I am an adult. It is true. Right, right. But that's why I, you know, I, I really wanted the book to be something that an adolescent and, and why I sent it to adolescents, so, you know, to review it. Well, I really wanted to be, you know, their ally, their advocate. And my gosh, just look at these other books that are out there. It is quite amazing when you see how, you know, how insulting these books are to adolescents. Right. The books that are out there. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe it. Right. And, and, and they don't seem to, the authors don't seem to care about that because they weren't writing it for that population. They were kind of writing it for adults to, I guess, have someone to commiserate with how horrible adolescents were in their view. And, and I just find that just not, you know, I guess as a therapist, I just find that not a very constructive stance to take. No. As a scientist, I find it's not consistent with at least one interpretation of the science. And as a parent, you know, I find it really kind of outrageous, you know, right. and, and listen, I have a 21 year old and 25 year old now. And man, if I took that attitude toward them, you know, you're just immature, your, your hormones going crazy. You know, and believe me, they had both very challenging parenting things that came up with them. But wow, that would have been so different if right. my wife and I had taken that attitude that these books are encouraging you to take, I, I don't know. So that's why I just felt like there needed to be some common conversation that has this essence. I mean, this is the thing that's amazing about it, I got to say. The essence is quite simple to remember. The essence relates to adults and adolescents. And if people work on those things, a lot of good things are going to happen. I really do agree with you. The positive breeds positive and it allows the natural course to take place and uh, for the adolescent to expand their mind and embrace adulthood. So fighting it seems really counterintuitive and, and counterproductive. Hating it uh, in a way with different representations in the media or some of the articles that you've referred to, it really seems like you're just sort of uh, feeding on the conflict and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the whole thing that's set up, of course, feels like a war. Right. And I get it. I mean, I get the, I get the danger thing. I mean, that's, you know, it's really, really frightening as a parent to see some of the very risky 
behaviors without much um, thought that are happening. And, and, I, and I totally get that. And so I don't want to minimize that. That's, in fact, I start the whole book with the, the sad but preventable death of, of my favorite teacher in psychiatry training, because a 19-year-old was going about 100 miles an hour you know, in a car after he'd crashed the car going about that fast uh, two months earlier. And I start the whole thing. So I, I get it. I, I, I get the worry about, listen, I've been there and I, I know it in all these ways. But, you know, I don't think the answer is, you know, a war between us and them. It's, right. a, it's a deep, deep collaboration that can change things. Well, let me ask you, this is a question that involves a lot of what we've talked about in terms of adults intersecting with adolescents and their world and whether we're at war or how to understand them, how to cooperate, how to learn about their world and how to guide them in this world that we may not know a lot about having passed through it and now being out of it. And that is, I'd like to know whether you view texting and social media as one of these excitatory processes that are sort of dopaminergic and leading to more reckless behavior. So in other words, is it possible that social media both enhances connectivity in, in helping adolescents have permission to connect with one another and say what they're feeling in the moment, but also can it impede, you know, necessary in-person experiences? And uh, how do we understand it and help adolescents understand it without a war, without them feeling like we're trying to reign on their parade or get into this world of theirs and sort of vilify it? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. It's always important in addressing any question, but especially one like this, to remember the Beatles phenomenon. I was, you know, like seven or eight or whatever when the Beatles came onto the Ed Sullivan show. And, you know, I remember, I literally remember my parents and my friends' parents as my friends and I were on the couch standing up with tennis rackets, pretending they were guitars, <laughs> strumming them. You know, our parents would say, you know, it's going to rot our brains. <laughs> you know, this horrible clanging noise is going to rot our brains. So, you know, I always think we, the older generation needs to take a deep breath and always just let's name that the Beatles phenomenon, always okay. realize that the older generation feels perturbed by new things that come through and we think it's going to be horrible and terrible. And, you know, I don't think the Beatles music has rotted anyone's brains, but it was a, um, a generational concern. So we begin there. And so, you know, the research that I'm aware of on social media suggests that for you know, adolescents who are socially skilled, it increases face-to-face -face time, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. And it can be pretty constructive, at least it was, this was done a few years ago. Whereas if you're socially challenged, like if you have social phobia or if you have, you're on the spectrum of autism, it can be very confusing because it's hard enough to read social cues face-to-face, -face, right? but it's hard to imply them through texts, like say, or this limited stream of energy and information flow, it's, it's harder to interpret them. So for those folks, you know, maybe 10 to 20% of the population, it can really be alienating even, right. you know, even more so. So we always have to ask the question, how is social media affecting whom? So, um, my English teacher would have been so proud of me. <laughs> so, uh, so that's the first thing. So I'm not so worried about social media. I'm more worried about the fact we have limited time and the time that people get now, even more than when those studies were done that I'm aware of, it's gotten so intricate and right. you can reduce your face-to-face -face time and lose the art of conversation and deep connection through more superficial forms of communicating and thinking you're connected when in fact you're just friended. Right. And it doesn't mean much of anything. 
except then when your numbers are lower than, you know, your neighbor's numbers, you feel inadequate. So this continuous feeling of either that one of them is insufficiency, right. like a state of insufficiency, and the other one is you're always missing out, fear of missing out. So so those two things, which are related, right, is the fear of missing out is what I have is not enough. I got to stay connected. So I got to get more. And so it's both insufficiency and fear of missing out. And those two things create a huge amount of stress. And I think the social media world is not intentionally creating that, but inadvertently creating that. And I know, you know, uh, as a joke with my wife, we work together at the Mindsight Institute. You know, she's my CEO, my boss. And so <laughs> we're always figuring out when you stop talking about, you know, when you stop talking about work and stuff like that. And I, so what I say to her is I said, look, the Internet is misnamed. It should be called the infinite <laughs> because you are ne you never get a feeling of completion. It's infinite. Right. You never ever get a feeling of completion. So you have to be you have to be kind of on top of it and just say, I willingly suspend my engagement with this infinite that gives me this continual sense of inadequacy and incompletion and more, 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 I got to do more, got to do more. And that, I think, more than even just social media, just even just the fact we have email that continuously pours in. I remember the old days. I remember the old days, you know, right. when it get a letter in the mail, which had this thing called a stamp, you yeah. know, you'd, you'd open it up when you felt like opening it up and you'd sit down and you'd read this beautiful letter. Someone took hours, if not days, sometimes weeks to write to you. Right. And then you have days to weeks to write back and you'll just go back and forth kind of at the speed of life. Instead, we're, we're, we're living at the speed of the internet, right. which gives you this infinite set of inadequacy. Well, so it sounds like in a way that you are perceiving social media as an excitatory process. And in fact, that we have to develop ways or use ways that we already have to regulate ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if in the future then, will we see a new psychological paradigm? that is actually founded on or influenced by the use of social media, another, a new way of looking at ourselves and, you know, understanding the projective system and even our uh, neurobiology, you know, how our sensory systems work in relation to, to this world. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's already happening. I mean, I think if you look at uh, some studies of kids, for example, who are exposed to the fast pace of shifting scenes yeah. in a, on a television screen, you know, and obviously every study can be controversial, but the implications, I think at least should be considered and the, the future research should elaborate this. But the possibility is that you entrain the brain, you, you get the brain used to very fast shifts in visual stimuli. Right. And that when visual stimuli are not shifting like that, you feel kind of restless and bored. Like, like why are they holding on to the scene for more than 15 seconds? I mean, right, right. please. And then, <laughs> so then, then you think about that, right? And then they go into a, an interaction where you're with a friend and you're talking to your friend. And after 15 seconds, your friend has not changed color. And, you know, they're, they're not like jumping up and down and exploding with wild rainbows of this and that. Well, it's relatively boring, right? you know, and so, you know, I remember when Fred Rogers was still alive, I got a call from his team to work with him to try to figure out a way to convince the television stations, public television stations that, you know, going at the, the rate of Fred Rogers was a good thing, which I believe it is for development, huh. uh, which I think it is. And, you know, sadly, he, he passed away right around that time and there's nothing more to do, but the idea of speeding up, it's a beautiful day in a neighborhood, a neighborly day in the beauty, but you know, you right. don't want to speed that up. No. Right? So in that sense, you know, we're getting the brain used to fast 
shifts in stimuli. And the reason I love the word time in to kind of amalgamate, you know, social, emotional processes that allow you to reflect inwardly, mindfulness practices where you reflect inwardly, the whole thing of mindset, you know, inward in the self, inward in others, you know, is that there's an inner life that is at a slower pace. It's at a reduced volume. It's not all the fancy exploding colors. And yet it's equally, if not more important than the external world that is at these fast paces and fast extremes of intensity. And that's a shame because, you know, we really need to highlight the importance of the inner world. Right. Well, it sounds then like as a parent, we have a responsibility to find a way to help some of the adolescents slow down at some point to take advantage of the inner world, to connect in a way that really does allow them to develop certain types of intuition or attunement that really need to be, we think at least, need to be developed in a longer period of time in a slower energy process that doesn't involve so much distractibility. Yeah, I think so. And I think that there may be a way to work collaboratively and build uh, on the digital world that we have. I don't think we should think of the digital world, you know, this idea that we reduce things to zeros and ones that then get put out as sound and vision, you know, on these screens we have on every level, you know, phones, uh, tablets, computers, all that. That's what the digital world means. So I don't think there's anything inherently bad about the digital world. I mean, some musicians may prefer analog music, which is fine. I think there are impacts of the digital world for sure. Are some of those impacts not so helpful for development and individual well-being? Absolutely. But I think we should think of the digital world as our friend, not our foe, and then figure out a way to make this really work well. And I think that's a doable, I think that's a doable challenge. I I agree with you. And it sounds very positive and inspiring. I thank you again very much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Siegel. It's really been a pleasure and I've really enjoyed exploring with you and hearing your thoughts and having you explain some of the ideas that you've already put out there. Oh, well, my pleasure. It's been really great to speak with you, Nicholas. Really, really fun. Well, thanks. I'll I'll look forward to hopefully uh, having another chance to talk to you in the future or perhaps when you're here on the East Coast presenting, uh, I'll be able to uh, attend and and speak with you in person. That would be great. Thanks so much. Keep up your wonderful work. Thank you again. Take care. Thanks. You too. Uh, For more information about Dr. Siegel's educational programs and resources, please visit www.drdansiegel.com. This is Nicholas Strauss. I've enjoyed having you with us today. If you'd like to participate some more, please visit us on the web at www.theparticipantobserver.com, where you'll find all things related to the Participant Observer. We'd love to hear from you because you are the Participant Observer. Observer.